Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. So welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we are going to be talking about elections in Sweden and in Kenya. We're going to be talking about the extraordinary events that unfolded in the last few days in uh, Ukraine. But inevitably, we're going to start with um, the death of the Queen. A bit weird for both of us, Rory, because neither of us were in the country. And I'm not suggesting that that would have affected very much. But I don't know about you in Uganda, but it felt a bit strange being in Albania as... Yeah, the country was convulsed. It's strange. Are you are you a privy councillor at the moment? Were you put in the privy council as part of your? No, I was never made a privy councillor. Thank God. I don't, <laughs> as you know, I don't believe in titles. <laughs> well, so so as a privy councillor, theoretically, I could have been there at the acclamation service for the for the new king. Um, so I, I felt sorry to miss out on that. Although I think they're doing it on a lottery, so I I probably wouldn't have made it in there anyway. Um, so yes, one of the things I think I've, I've seen you talking a bit about on Twitter is the question of the coverage of the Queen. Although most of the coverage I've been picking up is in the Nation and the Standard, which are Kenyan newspapers and then Uganda <laughs> newspapers, where I must say the coverage has been extraordinary day after day, front page mm. coverage in Uganda and Kenya. Um, I was in uh, a drought affected area of rural Kalifi yesterday, which is, you know, pretty remote, three hours on dusty roads and Union Jack at half mast outside mm. a building. The Kenyan president has announced national mourning. People are wearing black ties. In in Cuba, for goodness sake, and this is a lovely little thing on Twitter coming from my friend Ben Judah saying it's going to create real cognitive dissonance for the kind of classic pro-Cuban Republicans to find that the Cuban government has also announced national mourning and put its flags at half mast to the Queen. This is extraordinary. I do think the the, the international response was even though we knew it would be huge, it was extraordinary. I thought that some of the images, seeing the Sydney Opera House with the picture of the Queen in the middle bit of that extraordinary construction, uh, I thought the Brandenburg Gate done up as the as the Union Jack was extraordinary. I thought Macron's speech, both in French and English, particularly in light of Liz Truss's friend or foe, the jury is out. I thought he, I thought he won. The foreign tribute he's so, uh, he's award. So, he's so graceful, isn't he? And so graceful. But but just Justin Trudeau as well, though I thought was wonderful. Mm. Really moving and. But the, the, what was what was what was interesting? Like down, down where we um, have a place in France, the the local paper La Provence, page after page after page and pictures and and lots of I, I did. It, I, I've actually not done. I see you've done a few. I had. I'm sure you did, and everybody did who's had any connection ever with this extraordinary. <laughs> woman and this remarkable story, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bids to talk about it. And I actually decided just not to do any. I felt that was easier. Um, And I actually think it's one of those stories where you really, there's so much what I call just the blah factory, whereas actually the stuff that really matters is the, it's the event itself. It's then the planning. It's what the people who really matter are saying and doing. So I do think that actually seeing those interviews with the former prime ministers was really interesting I do think that watching the family and, and their reaction and so forth. But I do, I do think there's, you mentioned the coverage. I thought the BBC got it absolutely right. I thought Hugh Edwards was brilliant. Um, Hugh Edwards, I interviewed him for Men's Health a few months ago, and he, he actually said to me that 
he thought the death of the Queen would the biggest be the biggest test of the BBC in its history. And he also revealed to me that he he practiced for hours in front of his mirror for the moment. And that sounds a bit disrespectful, but I just it's the old Benjamin Franklin thing, fail to prepare and you're preparing to fail. And he did it absolutely brilliantly. But then I think once we got through the first day, by the time I was back from Albania, we were on to sort of day three. And then, you know, recent days in particular, where you you literally had to watch foreign media to find out what was going on anywhere else in the world. And and I think I do think that obviously she's incredible she was incredibly popular hugely loved around the country and around the world but i do think this kind of this absolute mono narrative that everybody has to be saying everything was wonderful and everybody has to be just cloyingly sort of supportive and pro and I, i'm not saying you know we should have had lots of sort of people covering this that the other but then it led to this extraordinary thing on sky news where there was a protest by the family and their supporters of somebody, a guy called Chris Cabber, who'd been killed. Um, and there was a protest against police conduct. And so there's these aerial pictures of this protest. The Sky News said, are there, there are people marching towards Buckingham Palace to pay their respects. <laughs> because they're just, lo- and to be fair to them, they apologised, they admitted yeah, it was yeah, a mistake. Yeah, yeah. But it's what happens when you get into this monotone. Yeah. And yeah. I think we've just got to yeah. be a bit careful. Well, I think, I'm sure, I think we should, probably should be a bit careful. Um, but thank goodness it doesn't happen very often to have a monarch who um, lasted 70 years. I mean, it's extraordinary. No, it's incredible. It is incredible. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, the, um, I'm trying to think of this. I mean, in a way, you're right. I mean, I, I, I did one brief interview on the Today program, and I've otherwise stayed off completely because I think that, that the, <laughs> there's not a great deal that you can say. I mean, one of the things that I think was part of her genius was she was extremely, um, well, extremely discreet and extremely mm. restrained. Um, mm. I, I remember when I got made a privy councillor. I, I knew her. I, I knew. I knew Her Majesty a little bit, and so I was expecting when I went to get you. you when you become a Secretary of State, you go to get these kind of stamps of office, which you can give to your kids to put in candle wax and go around stamping things with. Um, sort of gold chains of office. So I went to receive them in this very kind of formal thing in Windsor Castle, and. I was expecting a sort of wink or a smile or some sort of recognition of the fact that that sh- she knew me, but she was so absolutely professional, very much mm. played it very straight. No distinction between me and anybody else who was being made a minister at the time. I think I think the Daily I think the Daily Mail will love this story. Rory Stewart hurt that Queen didn't wink at him. <laughs> that is very much Kevin, not what I'm saying. But I Kevin Spacey I'm, winked at me. <laughs> but I guess what I'm saying is that that she. As a result, uh, I mean, I think it was exactly the right thing to do, right? She's mm. she's the queen. She's swearing in secretaries of state. There's absolutely formal, no favoritism, nothing personal going mm. on. But mm. that does mean that some of the encounters that people, I think, have been relating, they're trying to squeeze an enormous amount out of somebody who, mm. I think with her friends, you know, I definitely wasn't one of her friends. I think with one of her friends in private, she could relax more. But I think most of us who are encountering public, we're encountering a pretty formal person from whom... Mm. You're not extracting a huge number of anecdotes. I, I love the the line, but Tina Brown. Oh, here we go again, promoting the New York Times. Tina Brown wrote a, a piece in the, in the New York Times. She has it was my favourite line of the whole week. She said, "We're so going to miss not knowing what she thinks." <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was absolutely brilliant because you don't know what she thinks. I mean, people. I read all those pieces over the over the the, the weekend, and all the political correspondents sort of feel they have to get in on the act, so they're writing big long pieces about who were her favourite prime ministers and, and so forth. And 
They don't know. The truth is they do not know. And little myths develop. Like she didn't like Tony Blair because he, quote, saved her when Diana died. She didn't like Thatcher because she was another strong woman. I think these mythologies just develop. And then they. she really liked Harold Wilson. She really liked John Major because he came from a humble background. We don't know any of that. Exactly. Which is a great tribute to her. But you're quite right. So I think that's a good thing to move on to and conclude on that because we don't have a great deal to say. We don't (laughs) don't really know. There's actually one bit I do want to talk about because I don't think I don't think it has been given enough sort of thought amidst all this and and that is that and I I wrote a book called Winners seven years ago and I I actually ended up writing a chapter about the Queen as a very British enduring British winner and I spoke to a lot of the people who worked for her down the years and because I'd got to know them during that week of Diana's death and I do think it's important to recognize this is a point about leadership even though Prince Philip viewed strategy as something that only people like Stalin and Hitler talked about. I think the Queen was remarkably strategic, and I think that her ability to lead and adapt to a world of change while staying the same. And talking to these guys who were, I'm not, you know, bullshitting here, they were genuinely close to her, they were part of the operation that she led and so forth. And when they explained to it, it was this whole thing about how do you, they they, they talked about the famous novel, The Leopard by... uh, you know everything must change everything needs to change so that everything can stay the same that was the approach and i just think that that i think we should recognize the kind of it is a form of genius and you know i i have been a republican all of my life uh my first ever row with my mother was about not wanting to watch the queen's speech when i was about seven and she made me and and yet you have to recognize that I think in large part down to her and what she's done over the 70 years, but particularly since Anna Cerebalus, when they decided they had to make change, and then again after Diana's death, I think they made changes. She gave the go-ahead for that, but ultimately what we're seeing at the moment is the celebration of her and the institution rather than the changes, which is an incredible feat. Yeah, extraordinary. Um, incidentally, by the way, on, on book recommendations, I, I've read a wonderful biography of, of Lampedusa, the, the guy that wrote oh. the leopard. So um, I, 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 it's called The Last Leopard. Mm. Uh, it's by David Gilmore. And so anyone interested, it's an amazing book, amazing film too. You'd seen that great black and white film. I can hear yet again, bow down to your extraordinary vastness of knowledge because you did not, <laughs> we did not in any prior discussion discuss the fact that I was going to, to raise the leopard. So... Well done on that one. No, no, it's, it's my friend Felix is obsessed with the film. Amazing black and white film. I try to try to watch it with the family, and they got really bored. So maybe, maybe it's not for everyone. Now I know you, as the arch royalist, keep wanting to move off, yeah. but I want to come back to something. <laughs> and that was Prince Charles and the Inkwell. Oh, you mentioned on. the. Did you not see this? No, I didn't see the Inkwell. No. So when when at the at the meeting of the Privy Council where he yep. was sworn in, and I yep. have to say I thought I thought Penny Morton was a brilliant MC. She really did very very well. Um, but when Prince Charles, they all had to sign the the thing that they were reading out, and Prince William. Um, I remember my daughter watching and saying she was very excited that Prince William was left-handed because she's left-handed. <laughs> These left-handed people are superior. But when Charles was sat down to sign it, he got very very tetchy. Because there was an inkwell in the way. Oh, I see. And he waved it away very angrily in a way that 
we all sort of turned to each other and said, God, the Queen would never have done that. It was a very, you should look it up. It's a very, very interesting look at, moment. Look, look at that moment. It must be a very tense, tense moment. I was sorry I wasn't there, actually. I mean, I, it was, my mother thought the only point of my becoming a Privy Councillor was so that I'd be able to do that. <laughs> turn up, stand somewhere behind Tony Blair and the line of people in black suits. And it, was, it was funny watching uh, everybody trying to sort of photo bomb this. They'd obviously lined up the six prime ministers. Yeah, Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer was standing next to Tony Blair and they were yep. chatting away. Gordon Brown got the very, very short straw because he was he was next to Boris Johnson and then there was a bit of a gap. <laughs> so he had to sort of talk to him quite a lot. Um, and then Tessa Blackstone, I noticed, got in between Theresa May and John Major. So the picture of the six, never <laughs> it, it was never totally clean. Um, but it was a, it was an extraordinary event, and uh, it was it was yeah it was I, I did find the whole thing very moving. And, and yesterday, Fiona and I went down to the to the palace and just sort of milling around. And of course, during the week after Diana's death, I was because I was shuttling yeah, backwards and forwards sure. to the palace when we were planning the funeral, um, I got the feeling there were more, I think there were more people around that week, but actually when we were walking away, I realized that the, the police and the crowd control, they were, they were spreading the crowd. So the flowers actually were being laid for a long, long way from the palace. Well, um, and it was pretty, it was a pretty extraordinary thing. So, well, it's, it's amazing. I mean, maybe in question time, um, we can get back to this because people have obviously asked whether this is the time to rethink the monarchy and republicanism and things. And I think there's some interesting things mm. to be said about that. But you had something on the Swedish elections. Tell us about Swedish elections. This is going out, I think, Wednesday morning, and it may be clearer. We're recording on, on Monday. Um, but it, it does look pretty seismic what's happening in Sweden because the the ill-named Sweden Democrats um, have got, looked like they're going to get about 21%, 20% of the vote. And the Sweden Democrats are a party that emerged from the neo-Nazis in the 80s. Um, they've done a bit of a rebranding job. They kicked out some of the real kind of, you know, John Marie Le Pen types. But they're very, very right wing. There's been a lot of gang violence going on in Sweden. They've been, you know, focused on that. Scandinavia has such a wonderful <laughs> reputation in the, in the rest of the developed world. We always talk about the Scandies. And, so the Social Democrats are, 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 are going to be the biggest party. But because the Sweden Democrats are coming second, and then the, their kind of, I guess, equivalent of our Tory party is the mod, they call themselves the moderates. And I think what's going to happen, if, if it does go this way, and it literally is on a knife edge, they're now waiting for overseas votes to come in. And it's so close that that may swing it either way. But it, but it will be an extraordinary thing. And even for them to get one in five of the Swedish vote for this far right party um, that has campaigned mainly on immigration is a pretty extraordinary thing. It's amazing. And the immigration story is amazing in Sweden um, because Sweden has been incredibly good about reaching out to asylum seekers and has taken a country which was very ethnically homogenous in a very short period of time towards a situation where now I think 30% of the Swedish population don't have Swedish as their mother tongue. And that's you know almost half the population in some areas of cities. Mm. So th there's part of that going on. They, they had... Um, you, you told me about this just before we went on the podcast, so this is not me showing some amazing knowledge. I just popped on the Guardian website. But one of the things I noticed there was um, that they'd campaigned, the Swedish Democrats, this Nazi-originating party, with a metro train decorated in their electoral colors called the Repatriation Express with yeah. one-way ticket next stop Kabul. And they were sort of driving this underground train through through stations. And it just shows that that sort of nativist, populist, really quite nasty 
campaigning can strike a chord. They've grown with every one of the last half dozen elections or so. They've just grown and grown and grown and grown. They've got this quite charismatic leader, Jimmy Ackerson, who started out, I think he was about 25, and he's now he's now been there about 10 years, so quite young still. Um, but I think it will be, you know, if they do have to form the government, that will that's a big moment for, for Scandinavia and, for, and indeed for the European Union. Um, and, we, and, you know, we've, we've talked so much about this, and so we're back to this whole thing about the power, of the force of populism, whether the established parties and governments r- did take the, the concerns about immigration seriously, whether they're just being exploited or or have you, the whole thing. I think I do think that it'll be interesting again to see whether social media and the abuse of technology has been part of this, as it has been of so many of the other elections where this has taken place. Um, so the, the, on, on this bigger issue, because you're, you're, you're framing the big strategic issue, um, I really believe that we are in the middle of an age of populism. And it's an age of populism that really got going sort of 2014 to 16. So that's kind of Modi, Bolsonaro, Trump, Brexit, etc. Um, and there was a moment with Joe Biden's election and Trump's defeat where it felt as though maybe the pendulum was swinging back in another direction. But I think the underlying drivers of populism, which go all the way back to the 2008 financial crisis and inequality and problems of globalization and social media, are very, very durable. And mm-hmm. that sadly, what we're seeing, uh, that you know, we get these moments of what seem to be good news, Macron's election, for example. But as you pointed out, under the surface of Macron's election, is something very, very worrying, which is actually that the, the stronger trend is the deep development of these far left, far right parties, and a real worry about what on earth replaces him. Well, the other thing, of course, is is the this is going to be worsened by the conjunction of the energy crisis and the Ukraine war. You're already seeing, and the fact that Liz Truss can even appoint somebody like Jacob Rees-Mogg to be the business secretary when business we know, I think, does have actually the, the center of gravity in business is actually concerned about the future of the environment. But the whole net zero campaign, um, this is, that's the next sort of target for the, for the populist right. Um, and you can see how easy that's going to be for them. Your bills are going up. Why should you pay the price to save the planet for future generations? It's almost like, you know, what have future generations ever done for me? And that's the game that they're going to yeah. play. And, and of course, the problem is that one of the things that, that particularly right-wing governments attempted to do is effectively put the burden on the very poorest, because what they're doing is they're trying to put a carbon tax on the consumption of carbon, which has a good economic logic. I mean, it makes sense for an economist. But the truth is that that carbon consumption is a much larger proportion of the budget of somebody who's poor mm. than somebody who's wealthy. So It would, it yeah. would have been very interesting, Rory, if the, if the Queen had not died when, on the day that she did. And it was kind of extraordinary. There's Liz Truss, a new prime minister, on her feet in the House of Commons, announcing this extraordinarily large energy crisis package and a very, very, very clear dividing line emerging where she thinks this should be, not be paid for by windfall tax. It should be paid by borrowing and lo- loading onto future generations, the thing that they've said during the leadership election they would never do. And Keir Starmer very, very clear that it should be and I thought, I don't know if you saw any of the debate, I, I did think it was one of Keir Starmer's better moments in that. I thought he really was pretty clear and pretty strong and very, very, the, the dividing line was clear. And of course, that debate has now just vanished for now, yeah. yeah. but it's going to come back and it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. We'll come back very soon because you're, you're quite right. There's been an enormous amount of coverage of the new king, but 
I, I think that's something that will pass very quickly. And then we'll be back to the brutal reality of what's happening in our economy. Um, on the populism side, I'm speaking to you from, from Kenya, from Nairobi, where the new president, uh, Ruto. Uh, yep. William Ruto is going to be, uh, sworn in, inaugurated tomorrow. I was actually at the last inauguration of, um, here of, of Uhuru Kenyatta, his predecessor. This is another classic populist story. So in this case in Kenya, the old establishment really tried to come together and it felt as though they could really guarantee stitching up the election. So Odinga represents the Luo community and Kenyatta, the previous president, got behind him and he represents the Kukuyu community and it felt like there was no way they could be defeated. The maths were all in their favor. And it was a classic campaign run by an older man and Ruto, who was very much the insurgent, younger, been part of political youth movements, actually a history of violence, was indicted mm. by the International Criminal Court, but very much self-made. I mean, Odinga's father, Kenyatta's father, were huge politicians in their own right. William Ruto ran a campaign called Hustler Nation, and he's the hustler, came from nothing, built a fortune. He's very Trumpian. Very Trumpian, very, very Trumpian, and very much a strong man. Mm. And very much, you know, challenging a lot of the orthodoxies. And, but a bit like Trump also got some right wing economists on side by talking quite a extreme line on, on, um, on economics. And it, it was one of these classic, um, results where you, Mombasa, which was supposed to be the real heartland that was meant to be delivering for Dinga, didn't really turn out, didn't really vote for him in the way they were supposed to. And the Luo turnouts were low and the Kukuyu vote was split. And he got his base out. I mean, this is one of the things the populists do so well. He got that base out and voting mm. when people thought he couldn't. And he's taken the election. And it's a real sign, both of troubling populism, but also a very positive sign because it's broken. It's, bro it's broken the stranglehold. It's broken oh, the stranglehold of the old yeah. establishment. It's broken the idea that it's all defined by ethnicity. Mm. It, it isn't anymore in Kenya for the first time. And the election result was upheld. And there wasn't the widespread violence that people were predicting. So in many ways, it's a really... The institutions worked. It's a very yeah, impressive yeah. moment for Kenyan democracy. We had a few critics this week, Roy. I don't know if you noticed in the questions of people saying that, that I, I thought this was very unfair, but they thought that we were a bit belittling of what was happening in Chile last week. I don't think we were belittling at all. I think we were, we were shocked that the result was so big, given that so many people had wanted a new constitution. Why did they think we were belittling? What did they I think? I don't know. We were I think because, I think because we laughed at a point during the, and maybe that's just our, oh. our humor coming out too, too much. Should, we shouldn't laugh too much. I shouldn't laugh too much. There's one more thing on Kenya quickly before we go to Ukraine. I, I was um, in these very drought-affected areas uh, in Khalifi yesterday. And if you want to see climate change in action, generally people tell stories from things like Lake Chad, which is famously retreating 500 meters a year. So villages eventually are just too far away to even walk for the water. Or yeah. they talk stories from Somalia. They don't focus more on the much more complicated, but much more, almost much more worrying story of climate change, which is the way that it's happening in almost every country of the world. And it's a more complicated story. So in the case of Kenya, I was in villages which give directly been supporting, but which have been hit very hard by droughts. So you'd go into the maize granaries and there was no maize because the entire crop had been wiped out, just shriveled husks from last year's. You could see the bones on the cows. One woman I was talking to had lost uh, all her livestock. I went out with the young men who were walking their cows out of forage. They're now walking miles and miles and miles to try to get a scrap of grass to keep them alive. Mm. And it's microclimate stuff. Part of the reason why it's a difficult story to tell is we then drove another 25 miles 
and found a village where there actually had been some rainfall and everybody was much better off. But I, very yeah. difficult for journalists to tell these stories because I don't know whether editors can really bring them alive for British voters. But if you want to see climate change and how devastating it's being and why 200 million more people are likely to be pushed into poverty, we've got to learn how to tell these sort of micro stories from places like Kenya. But I think the problem with the whole debate on climate change is that the media, large parts of the media in the main, they don't cover climate change, they cover the weather. It's about the weather. So, so we hear about it when we see these flash floods and we see you know, Pakistan underwater yep. and, and, and it's about the rescue and it's about the operation. But actually, bizarrely, the, lo- the, 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 the more impactful these events have been, I think we're actually having less debate about climate change than we did. So, and what you're saying there, I mean, even as you were saying that, I was imagining a journalist going to an editorial meeting and saying, let's go and do something about how climate change is affecting farming in Kenya. They're going to look at you and say, well, you know, shouldn't we be doing, shouldn't we be doing something else about Prince Charles? Anyway, should we, should we, should we take a break and come back and, and talk about extraordinary events in Ukraine? We will. Thank you. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister at that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And we, we were moving on to the extraordinary developments in Ukraine. Do you just want to remind us what's been happening over the last few days? Well, I mean, I do think if it hadn't been for the, for the Queen, this would have been like huge news. And in fact, even though the Queen has been the main story in pretty much every country in the world, I have been even more than usually getting my news from foreign sources because I think people have realize this is i think potentially it's extraordinary I and mean, when you when you have people like laurie friedman the historian at kings talking about this being a, a tipping point then you have to take that seriously i mean zelensky is is saying and you've got to be careful with this because the the media can't get to the front line a lot of the information that we're getting is from telegram videos that have been posted and and from official ukrainian claims but they're talking about as of now, as of today, as we're speaking, more than 3,000 square kilometers being taken, um, including these, inc- these very, very important um, s- supply line places, Izium and Kupiansk, and, and the Russians admitting that they've had to, the phrase they use was retreat to regroup. And you're also seeing some extraordinary, I noticed John Simpson on the BBC this morning, he tweeted the somebody called Igor Gierkin, who used to work for the SFB and is a huge Vladimir Putin supporter, saying that what's happening around Kharkiv is similar to what happened in the Battle of Mukden in 1905 when Japan destroyed the Tsar's army. And that led to, uh, it ultimately led to the revolution. revolution. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it feels very, very special. 
just on that one though, um, so I think it's a double-edged sword, uh, people like Gherkin's comments, because he, of course, is using this to now argue for a massive national mobilization. Absolutely. So, so the big threat now to Putin is now increasingly coming not from more pro-Western critics of the human rights abuses in Ukraine. It's coming from nationalist Russians who feel he's not doing enough. In fact, the overwhelming Russian population is very much in favor of what's going on, as far as one can tell from opinion polls. And there is now big demands on Russian television, on social media, and it seems to be being allowed by the regime, demanding national mobilization. And that's including very sinister people like the the Chechen leader who's been out demanding action. So there's a real move now, which may mean that this counterattack, this incredibly successful counterattack, may provoke, or at least there are people in Russia who are trying to push for it to provoke a very, very brutal mobilization and reaction. Um, I, I also just, just one other thing that I was thinking about on this is, is the morale collapse because basically what's happened, there's been some fantastic jokes from the Ukrainians on social media saying, thank you so much to the Russian military who continue their role as our largest defense supplier with photographs of all these abandoned <laughs> Russian tanks and stuff. But basically the Russian soldiers don't know what they're fighting for is at the core of the problem. They were told they were going in to deal with Nazis. Then they were told they were going to go and take Kiev. Then they were told they weren't taking Kiev. Many of them have deserted. Morale is absolute rock bottom. They've just been sold this amazingly simple deception plan where the Ukrainians just basically said they were going to attack on the south and then attacked on the east. And the Russians responded by moving mm. all their troops to the south. I mean, it's a catastrophe. The the other, the other thing, it, it, I, I do agree with you, by the way, the, the, stuff, the criticism that is coming out, which you've seen a little bit on state TV, You've actually seen it also, TASS, the, the official news agency, reporting quite negatively about some of this stuff. And there's another ex-FSB guy, a guy called Strelkov, who said this, tonight the capital of our motherland, Moscow, salutes the surrender of Baklayeva, Izium, and half of Kupiansk with high-altitude fireworks. And this was Putin going to this 875th anniversary party and boasting that they now had the, the the biggest Ferris wheel in the world. And it did make him look incredibly out of touch with what's going on. But whether that's being sanctioned, and of course, the other point that, that analysts are making about this is that if we should be worried about a strong Russia under Putin, we should also be worried about a weak Russia under Putin, because the more that he feels he's either being humiliated or put into a corner, don't forget, his whole strategy has been driven by his insight that the collapse of the Berlin collapse of the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the Soviet Union was an utter humiliation, it's all been about rebuilding from that, and he's now being described as having been humiliated by this little guy in a brown vest who goes around, you know, putting out videos every night. So I think he is, you know, none of us. Like, it's a bit like with the Queen. None of us really know what's going on inside Vladimir Putin's head. But it's this is these are these are dangerous days. The next few days, very dangerous. And 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 remember, we were talking about the fact that during the the classic May Day parade, he he didn't announce a national mobilization when people expected him to. He hasn't used tactical nuclear weapons, but all those options remain to him. Do you think the thing about the draft? I mean, you talked about the opinion polls, and of course, it's very hard to know whether an opinion poll in Russia means anything. But I wonder whether whether mothers, in particular, we talk about Russian mothers. If there were to be a draft, when they know, they do know, despite state propaganda, that an awful lot of people have been dying, whether that actually will even, whether that might be the moment that the people really, really yeah, do well, turn. So I think it depends partly. I mean, I think Putin, 
part of him will be thinking about the Afghan experience. And of course, Afghanistan, this, this Russian Soviet experience in Afghanistan, was one of the things that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was the terrible humiliation of tens of thousands of Soviet soldiers dying year after year and being smuggled back in secret. I, I went to see Russian veterans of the Afghan war in Moscow. I went to a bar with them. And it's a very, very troubling, disturbing story. And I think that there may be somewhere in Putin's back of his mind, because he was a KGB officer, of course, before the mm. fall of the Berlin Wall. He, he may fear that getting dragged into very deep, intractable conflicts. Um, and, and of course, as we said before, Ukraine is not Afghanistan. Some of these veterans I was with in the bars had very kind of racist views about Afghanistan. Some mm. of them were respectful. Some sort of talked about worried people, but there was also a sense that this was a very much a third world country. Ukraine, of course, the rhetoric is from the ultranationalists. This is really part of Russia. Mm. It's it would be more like um, I don't know. We keep stupid analogies, but it'd be more like Britain trying to invade Ireland or something. I mean, it, it's it's it it causes a much deeper psychic tension amongst Russians. I hope Liz Truss is not listening. Um, <laughs> we don't want to put this thought in anybody's head. Um, the other thing that's happening this week that I think will be really interesting if it goes ahead, I mean, it'd be interesting whether Putin actually feels he has to stay in in uh, in Moscow. Um, but there's this thing called the Shanghai Cooperation Association, which is meeting this week. And this is China. I mean, it's basically called the, the sort of dictator's club, but it's China, uh, Russia. And they're, in, they're, they're planning to... Um, to allow Iran to enter. Great. Um, and yeah. <laughs> and at the, the, the moment, it's basically, it's China, Russia, and a few of the, I think it's Pakistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan. I think the Saudis are there or thereabouts. Belarus are there or thereabouts. And, it's, and they're meeting, the, the, the plan, I think this was when they felt they were on the up. Uh, they're meeting in Samarkand and the, with the symbolism of the Silk Road and the great game that they're winning and so forth. So, but I think what Xi, what Xi Jinping and the Chinese will be thinking about what's happening in Ukraine at the moment, that is the bit of this that I would really love to know because I think they, they must be a bit alarmed. They are taking extra heat from the Americans on Taiwan because of what Putin's yeah. done. There's no sense of real progress that they thought might be happening. So I, I think this could be, could be interesting. These Chinese-Russian relations are, kind of long and difficult. But there's definitely, I think, a sense in China, along with sympathy with the anti-Western rhetoric coming out of Putin, uh, a real sense that Russia failed, that it's humiliated itself, that this is exactly the kind of thing that China would not do. Yeah. And China has been quite careful to toe a neutral line. They haven't fallen over backwards to provide support for Russia on this. Putin would have expected much, much more support. Remember, we were talking about this after the Winter mm. Olympics, that maybe there was mm. some cunning plan that China was going to come in hard behind Russia. That that hasn't happened. Um, so I think, I mean, you know, I'm again, I'm in on China. I mean, I'm in the heart of this here. I, I um, came back from Mombasa. There's a huge train line that Chinese have just built. It's a Chinese train on Chinese rails, and it's run by Chinese train operators and arrives on the minute uh, in Nairobi. The one thing actually very disappointing is there's not a Chinese dining car. I was hoping for delicious Chinese food, but that, that that was not coming on the train. Um, but also fascinating on, on development and things. I mean, one of the things happening here, which you could imagine from British politics, is this train line, which is moving all the goods and is meant to move them from the port of Mombasa up to Nairobi and even up to Uganda. Um, both political candidates have offered in their electoral campaign to stop the train line entirely. 
because the truckers from Mombasa have all lost their jobs. They were supposed to be, oh, wow. their, their jobs were driving the trucks up and down the main mm. road. Very polluting, very bad for the environment, totally inefficient, blocks all the roads. But this beautiful new train, which is actually, it's extraordinary cost. I mean, people estimate that it's costing 25% of the GDP of Kenya. So huge debt to China trying to pay it off. Both presidential candidates at some point suggested they were just going to stop the train entirely and go back to driving stuff on trucks. Wow. I do think, by the way, we should recognize, because um, I, don't, I don't think the guy gets nearly enough credit for what's happening in Ukraine. The, the reason, the, one of the main reasons for this extraordinary military turnaround, if that's what it is, has been the, the incredible commitment that Joe Biden and the Americans have put into providing the weaponry. And I know Britain has been part of that as well, and we should recognize that too. But I think Joe Biden has, he's, and, and I think part of his thinking throughout this thing has been in relation to China, that because it does, it has troubled the Chinese. And I think that Putin now, if he is as desperate as people are saying he is, he will be looking to China for support. If that support is not forthcoming, it weakens his alliance with the Sino-Russian alliance. If it is forthcoming, then that is a massive risk that the Chinese are playing vis-a-vis -vis the Americans. So I think I could, what do I know? But I do think Xi Jinping will be looking at Putin rather differently than he was at the uh, Winter Olympics. Yeah, the United States is such a central player in, in all this stuff. So I think even last month, they were well over $50 billion of assistance to, to Ukraine and incredible weaponry they're providing. Um, and as countries like Britain, very sadly, you know, are, our budgets are under pressure. We're cutting international development, something we've talked about a lot. I believe in the latest humanitarian response in the Horn of Africa, the United States is carrying 93% of the burden, financial burden of that mm. uh, extreme famine humanitarian response to drought um, as players like the United Kingdom, but also the European Union are really not doing as much as the United States in these areas. Mm. I mean, mm. uh, America's carrying a lot of burden around the world. And, and it's, it's, it's sad in a way that actually other players haven't stepped up as much as one hopes because, of course, America, you know, is still about the same size world economy as it's been for many decades. But you would have thought these emerging powers would begin to play a bigger role in this stuff, and they haven't mm. quite stepped up. Well, there we are. I think we've, we've, we said we were going to do the Queen, uh, Ukraine, Kenya, Sweden. Anything else you'd like to tell a grateful public, Rory? Yeah, grateful public. Well, what we want to know, actually, so you're, you're, you're seeing, maybe this is unfair, but you're seeming a little bit chirpier than when we saw you last week. Are you feeling a bit better or is, or is it still a bit tough? No, no, I'm feeling a lot better. I feel a lot yep. better. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I do feel a lot better. I feel I'm definitely through the worst. Um, I had a peak when we recorded, I think it was two or three, was it two or three weeks ago? Um, when I was really, really bad. And then about a week to 10 days where I was struggling and I feel I'm I'm through the other side, which is a nice, nice thing. And, and I just better warn you, Roy, that when I get through the other side, <laughs> I, I can get I can start again with the four a.m. email saying what the hell is going on and why are we doing this? So the the the, 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 the manic the manic side kicks in a bit. But no, thank you for asking. I've got I've got my I've got my mojo back. Okay, well, lots of love and see you for question time. 